This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to Witnesses of History. Our reports this time are all about trains and boats and cars. Transport is our feature with a major report, The Conditions of Life, aboard French galleys in 1703 and 1704. But I'm also referring to the Daily Telegraph reports from their 125th anniversary publication, and we're going to start on the, 6th, the 18th of November in 1869 with a report from about the opening of the Suez Canal, which actually happened on the 16th of November. The fate's inauguration of the Suez Canal have commenced by religious ceremonies in the open air, which were performed by both the Ulemas and the Catholic priests. The service is concluded by a speech and a benediction from Monsignor Bayo, the almoner of the Empress Eugenie. Great enthusiasm prevailed. The Viceroy and his ministers, the Empress Eugenie, the Austrian Emperor, the Princes of Prussia, Holland and Hesse, the diplomatic representatives for all nations, as well as an immense concourse of distinguished visitors were present. And then... A subsequent report from the next day, the opening of the Suez Canal is a genuine success. The Empress of the French reached Ismailia in the steamer Aigle. Two French government steamers arrived today from Suez. The canal has, therefore, been traversed by sea steamers from sea to sea. In a similar vein, we move on 16 years to the day to November the 18th, 1885, and a short report in the Telegraph about the first train to cross Canada. The following telegram has been received from Mr. Samford Fleming, CE, CMG, late engineer-in-chief of the Dominion Government Railways, by the President of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Vancouver's Burrards Inlet, British Columbia, November the 8th, 1885. First through train from Montreal arrived at Vancouver. Most successful journey. Average speed, including ordinary stoppages, 24 miles per hour. Before long, quite possible to travel from Liverpool to Pacific by Canadian National Line in 10 days. Physical difficulties have been overcome by gigantic works skillfully executed with marvellous rapidity. Sanford Fleming and now we have a substantial report about the conditions of life aboard the French galleys from 1703 to 4 by John Bion. My being several campaigns chaplain aboard one of the galleys, called La Superbe, gave me sufficient opportunity of informing myself of the truth of the following relation. But before I proceed to show the sufferings and ministry, misery the wretches in the galleys labour under, I shall give a short description of that vessel. A galley is a long, flat, one-decked vessel, though it has two masts, yet they generally make use of oars because they are built so as not to be able to endure a rough sea, and therefore their sails for the most part are useless, unless in cruising, when they are out of sight of land, for then, for fear of being surprised by ill weather, they make the best of their way. 
there are five slaves to every oar. One of them, a Turk, who being generally stronger than Christians, is set at the upper end to work it with more strength. There are in all 300 slaves and 150 men, either officers, soldiers, seamen or servants. There is at the stern of the galley a chamber shaped on the outside like a cradle belonging to the captain and solely his at night or in foul weather, but in the daytime common to the officers and chaplain. All the rest of the crew, the under officers excepted, who retire to other convenient places, are exposed above deck to the scorching heat of the sun by day and the damps and inclemencies of the night. There is indeed a kind of tent suspended by a cable from head to stern that affords some little shelter, but the misfortune is that this is only when they can best be without it, that is, in fair weather, for in the least wind or storm it is taken down, the galley not being able to endure it for fear of oversetting. The two winters, in Anno 1703 and 1704, we kept the coasts of Monaco, Nice and Antibes. Those poor creatures, after hard rowing, could not enjoy the usual benefit of the night, which puts an end to the fatigues and labours of the day, but were exposed to the wind, snow, hail, and all other inconveniences of that season. The only covenant they wished for was the liberty of smoking, but that, on the pain of the bastinado, the usual punishment of the place, is forbidden. The vessel, being but small for the number, the men consequently crowded, the continual sweat that streams down from their bodies whilst rowing, and the scanty allowance of linen, one may easily imagine, breed abundance of vermin, so that in spite of all the care that can be taken, the galleys swarm with lice, etc., which nestling in the plaits and laps of their clothes relieve by night the executioners who beat and torment them by day. Their whole yearly allowance for clothes is two shirts made of the coarsest canvas and a little jerkin of red serge slit on each side up to their armholes. The sleeves are also open and come not down so low as their elbows and every three years a kind of a coarse frock and a little cap to cover their heads which they are obliged to keep close shaved as a mark of infamy. Instead of a bed they are allowed sick or well, only a board a foot and a half broad, and those who have the unfortunate honour of lying near the officers dare not presume, though tormented with vermin, to stir so much as a hand for their ease, for fear their chain should rattle and awake any of them, which would draw on them a punishment more severe than the biting of those insects. It is hard to give an exact description of the pains and labours the slaves undergo at sea, especially during a long campaign. The fatigue of tugging at the oar is extraordinary. They must rise to draw their stroke and fall back again almost on their backs, insomuch that in all seasons, through the continual and violent motion of their bodies, the sweat trickles down their harassed limbs. And for fear they should fail, as they often do through faintness, there is a gangboard which runs through the middle of the ship on which they are constantly posted three commits, an officer somewhat like a boatswain in Her Majesty's ships, who whenever they find or think that an oar does not keep touch with the rest, without ever examining whether it proceeds from weakness or laziness, they unmercifully exercise a tough wand on the man they suspect, which being long is often felt by two or three of his innocent neighbours, who being naked when they row, each blow imprints evident marks of the inhumanity of the executioner. 
And that which adds to their misery is that they are not allowed the least sign of discontent or complaint, that small and last comfort of the miserable, but must, on the contrary, endeavour with all their might to exert the little vigour that remains and try by their submission to pacify the rage of those relentless tigers whose strokes are commonly ushered in and followed by a volley of oaths and horrid imprecations. No sooner are they arrived in any port, but their work, instead of being at an end, is increased, several laborious things previous to casting anchor being expected from them, which in a galley is harder than a ship. And as the Kamich's chief skill is seen in dexterously casting anchor, and that they think blows are the life and soul of work, nothing is heard for some time but cries and lamentation. And as the poor slave's arms are busy in the execution of his commands, his are as briskly exercised in lashing them to support their strength under all these hardships. During the campaign, every morning at eight o'clock, they give each man his proportion of biscuit, of which indeed they have enough and pretty good. At ten, a porringer made of oil with peas or beans, often rotten and commonly musty. I call it soup, according to their use, although it be nothing but a little hot water with about a dozen peas or beans floating on the top. And when on duty, a pichon of wine, a measure containing about two-thirds of an English pint, morning and evening. When at anchor in any port, all who have any money are allowed to buy meat, and the Turk that commands the oar and is not chained is commonly the person employed for this purpose, as also to see it dressed in the cookroom. But I have often seen the captain's cook, a brutal, passionate man, take the poor men's pot under pretense that it troubled him and either break or throw it overboard, whilst the poor wretches were fainting for want of that little refreshment without daring so much as to murmur or complain. This indeed is not usual, but where the cook happens to be a villain, of which sort of men there are plenty in the galleys. The officer's table is well furnished both for plenty and delicacy, but this gives slaves only a more exquisite sense of their misery and seems to brave their poverty and hunger. We've spent the carnival of 1704 in the port of Monaco. Our officers frequently treated the prince of that place aboard the galley. Their entertainments were splendid. Music and all things that could promote mirth were procured, but who can express the affection of those poor creatures who had only a prospect of pleasure, and whilst others revelled at their ease, were sinking under a load of chains pinched with hunger in their stomachs, and nothing to support their dejected spirits. Nay, and what is worse, they are forced to add to the pomp and honour done to great men who visit their officers, but in such a manner as moves the compassion of all who are not used to such dismal solemnities. When a person of quality comes on board, the commit gives twice notice with his whistle. The first time they are all attentive, and the second the slaves are obliged to salute, as they call it, three times, not with a cheerful huzzah as in an English man of war, but by howling in a piteous tone making a lamentable complaining outcry. When the badness of the weather hinders the galleys from putting to sea, such as have trades work in the galley, such as have none learn to knit coarse stockings, the commit, for whose profit they work, gives them yarn and pays them about half the usual price, and this not in money, but some little victuals or wine which they are obliged to take out of the ship's cellar, of which the commit is the keeper. Though it be generally bad and dashed with water, 
For though they had as much gold as they could carry, they durst not, on pain of a bastinado, send for any wine from the shore. The most moving spectacle of all is to see the poor souls that have no trade. They clean their comrades' clothes and destroy the vermin that torment their neighbours, who in return give them some small share of that scanty pittance they purchase by working. One may imagine that such ill-treatment, diet and infection must needs occasion frequent sickness. In that case, the usage is thus. There is in the hold a close, dark room. The air is admitted only by the scuttle two feet square, which is the only passage into it. At each end of the said room there is a sort of scaffold called Tola on which the sick are laid promiscuously without beds or anything under them. When these are full, if there be any more, they are stretched all along the cables, as I saw in the year 1703, when being on the coast of Italy in wintertime we had above three score sick men. In this horrid place all kind of vermin rule with an arbitrary sway, gnawing the poor sick creatures without disturbance. When the duties of my function called me in amongst them to confess, advise or administer some comfort, which was constantly twice a day, I was in an instant covered all over with them, it being impossible to preserve oneself from their swarms. The only way was to go down in a nightgown which I stripped off when I came out, and by that means rid myself of them by putting on my clothes. But when I was in, methought I walked, in a literal sense, in the shades of death. I was obliged, notwithstanding, to make considerable stays in this gloomy mansion to confess such who were ready to expire, and the whole space between the ceiling and the taller being but three feet, I was obliged to lie down and stretch myself along their sides to hear their confessions, and often, while I was confessing one, another expired just by my side. The stench is almost intolerable, insomuch as that there is no slave, though ever so weak, but will rather choose to tug at his oar and expire under his chain than to retire to this loathsome hospital. And now proceed to show what sort of people are condemned there. There are in a galley five several sorts of people under the notion of slaves, besides seamen and soldier, viz. Turks, such as called Falsenir, deserters, criminals and Protestants. The king buys the Turks to manage the stroke of the ear, or as I've already shown, and they are called Vogavon, and they, together with such as are on the seats called Banque de Cartier de la Conille and Les Appaliers, have the same allowance with the soldiers. They're generally lusty, strong men, and the least unfortunate of the whole crew. They're not chained, but only wear a ring on their foot as a badge of slavery. Those who are called Fossoniers, or deceivers, are generally poor peasants, who are found to buy salt in such provinces where it is cheap, such as the country of Burgundy or the country of Dombey. In France, what they call a pint of salt weighing four pounds costs three and six. There are some poor peasants and their whole families, who for want of salt eat no soup sometimes in a whole week, though it be their common nourishment. A man in that case, grieved to see his wife and children in a starving, languishing condition, ventures to go abroad to buy salt in the provinces, where it is three parts in four cheaper. If discovered, he is certainly sent to the galleys. It is a very melancholy sight to see a wife and children lament their father, whom they see laden with chains and irrevocably lost, and that for no other crime but endeavouring to procure subsistence for those 
to whom he gave birth. As for deserters, their sentence runs during life. Formerly, they used to cut off their nose and ears, but because they stank and commonly infected the whole crew, they only now give them a little slit. Such as are condemned for crimes are generally filu, pickpockets, sharpers, rooks or highwaymen. The most notorious villains are least daunted and take heart soonest. They presently strike up a friendship with those of their own gang. They tell over their old rogueries and boast of their crimes and the greatest villain passes for the greatest hero. The Protestants are there purely because they chose rather to obey God than man and were not willing to exchange their souls for the gain of the world. Well, we finish with a more joyful report Back to the Daily Telegraph, November the 16th, this time 1896. Motorists celebrate their emancipation. Motor cars on Saturday celebrated the coming into force of their Magna Carta. Anomalous restrictions which have hitherto harassed the most modern means of transport have been, if not wholly to a great extent removed by the Locomotives on Highways Act of 1896, which is now operative, and by the way of befittingly marking this historic event in the development of the new industry, the Motor Car Club arranged a tour from London to Brighton. Curiosity is not the word for the keen interest displayed by the public. The welcome accorded to the vehicle of the future was in the nature of a mighty demonstration of goodwill whose character and proportions appear to have been totally unforeseen by the Metropolitan and Provincial Police. From Charing Cross to the West Pier at Brighton, spectators assembled by hundreds of thousands in the metropolis, by thousands in the towns, by hundreds in the villages and by scores at almost every yard of the country roads traversed. It is computed that when the signal was made for the start at half past ten o'clock, there were no fewer than half a million people in the vicinity of the National Liberal Club and Whitehall Court. It was with the greatest difficulty that the police succeeded in clearing the roadway for the assembling of the motor cars, which illustrated almost all the existing types of motor-propelled vehicles, from the tricycle and the bath chair to the Landol and Victoria. The noble chairman gave a dramatic touch to the proceedings by tearing into shreds of a red flag such as usually carried before traction engines on highways as a signal for caution. In the forefront of the procession was the pilot car displaying the violet and gold banner of the motor car club, the president of which, in yachting costume, steered the machine, a dog cart with a hood, which was propelled by a panhard motor. Out of the 22 cars which had arrived, or which, as a telegram stated, were still on the road, the President announced at the celebration dinner in Brighton that evening, the most remarkable performance was undoubtedly that of Monsieur Bollet, the distinguished French inventor, who, starting from Brixton at 11.30am on his tricycle, reached his destination at 20 past two in the afternoon, under three hours. The other cars, with one exception, the Durée, the American car, which was very fast and was very early indeed to reach Brighton, were the Daimlers, or British Motor Syndicate cars, so they had reason to congratulate themselves all round. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>